Hello, and welcome to Bright Lights, Big Data, a podcast about people, places, and data. I'm your data host, Tammy Armstrong. I'm your planning host, Mike Armstrong. And today we are going to continue our series on problem solving, really working again off of, selfishly, my analytical life cycle here. And I'm trying to fit in where I am. <laughs> the more we talk about this, the more it's... This, I think, is really analogous to our personalities, right? Like, I'm, like, spreadsheets and data. I'm like, come on, just fit into my life cycle. <laughs> it's got to be linear and... Uh, you're much more sort of like people and engagement and like sure I'll make that work <laughs> you you have a very clearly defined process and I have a very adaptive process yeah. but I think there's still a lot of overlaps and intersections that are interesting and hopefully interesting for all of you yeah I'm trying to make like an odd couple joke about like I flick my cigar onto the rug and you vacuum it up but I'm not really sure which one of us would be which analogy. <laughs> <laughs> Bottom line is neither of us vacuum, yeah. and that's a problem. But in our problem-solving process, or in, in my problem-solving process, I guess I should say, just to recap, so far we've talked about problem definitions, so really getting a clear understanding of where you're trying to go and what success will look like at the end of your problem-solving mm-hmm. um, process. Then we talked about data collection. So getting your data from different sources or maybe creating the data fresh. And now we're going to talk about data exploration. The next parts would be modeling and analysis, and then validation or testing, and then communicating a final recommendation. And it's something of a cycle because from there you usually end up finding after you put something into production that there are maybe more opportunities after that. Yeah, so from my experience at least, I won't speak for all planners, but data exploration is not a term that I've used before, and so I'm happy to have you teach me all about it, and I will say things that are relevant. Uh, when we were planning this episode, you know, I, I was like, oh, you know, data exploration. And in talking more about it, I realized, like, that isn't as common as I think it is. And to be fair, it is, I think, really an unglamorous and really undervalued part of the analytical life cycle, even. It's a step that a lot of people skip. They'll skip the problem definition, they'll go straight to data collection, and then they'll skip exploration and go straight to analysis and modeling. And as I was thinking about it, I was thinking there's kind of a good analogy with cooking. You know, I I apparently use a lot of cooking analogies when we talk about (laughs) algorithms and things like that, just following a recipe. And just like you could follow a recipe without making sure you had all of the ingredients first, you might get lucky if it turns out you actually do have all of those things. But how many holiday meals (laughs) end up involving uh, multiple trips to the grocery store because you forgot you didn't actually Mm -hmm. have as much butter as you thought you had and all of that. So that's kind of how I think about data exploration. It's avoiding pitfalls later on in a variety of ways. And that will actually just make the whole process take a little bit longer. So for me, I think there's two categories of data exploration. One is just getting to know your data, and then there's kind of massaging and cleaning your data. And all of this kind of bleeds over into analysis a little bit. It's not a very clear line when data exploration ends and analysis begins, but typically we're not doing a ton of really in-depth statistics and modeling when we're doing this, but I'll talk about getting to know your data first, and I think this is a good step for anybody that's doing any kind of numerical analysis, and this is just, what's the average and the median 
and the, the minimum and the maximum values of your variables. If you've got something a little more qualitative or categorical, how many instances of each value do you have? So if you're looking at something like colors of t-shirts in a store inventory spreadsheet, you might just want to count up how many you have of each color, how many times that shows up in your spreadsheet. So it's not really numerical to start with, but you can say, well, I've got this many blue and this many red, and no, is that evenly distributed? Or do you have a lot more blues than reds or something like that? And that just tells you something about your data that might be important to know down the road to say like, well, turns out people just aren't buying red shirts. It's like, it's because we don't have red shirts. We have like two of them. So just kind of ground truthing a little bit. Another thing that's really important when data scientists are doing really in-depth modeling work is that there are assumptions that we have in our models that don't, strictly speaking, have to be true for the model to run. So it doesn't necessarily break the math. Like, you can enter in the command and the software will bring you back results. But the results won't be valid if the assumptions aren't met. So at this point, do you already have the model? Not necessarily. There might be a couple of modeling methods I have in mind maybe kind of thinking about a couple of techniques. So some of it's sort of self-evident, like if we're looking at trending data over time, that's already going to narrow my possibilities a little bit. Whereas if I'm looking at predicting whether or not something's going to happen, that's going to necessarily lead to a certain subset of modeling techniques. You know, I don't necessarily know exactly which one I'm going to use, but there are some that are very popular and like have a common set of assumptions. So like the data need to be distributed a certain way. I don't want a bunch of skewed data, meaning I have a lot of really high values and very few low values because it, like I said, doesn't exactly break the math in the way that we talked about cursive dimensionality last episode, actually breaking math. It's physically impossible to do it. It just doesn't create the valid results that you thought you were getting. Okay. So is this also where you're... (laughs) The only word I can think of is trawling. Uh, But uh, like searching for outliers Mm -hmm. and sort of trimming in some of that. It's sort of like checking the expiration date on your ingredients too, right? (laughs) You know? So you physically can stir in rotten eggs into your cake, but you're going to have a disgusting cake at the end, right? So it's, it's checking that quality of your ingredients. And again, at this stage, we're not necessarily making any changes, but what we find out at this stage might lead us to changes later. So to build off of that, you talked about validation as a later step, but that's more of your entire model's validation, Mm -hmm. making sure that the whole process is working. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about data validation at this step. Again, thinking about that idea of like, have your ingredients expired? Mm -hmm. The MPO over the past couple of years have been working and put together this regional water trails plan. What are we going to do with our rivers and creeks? Increasing access, increasing water quality, bringing people back to the water and making it a part of our lives again. And so we put together this very large existing conditions report. This is what we know the conditions are. That was a lot of data and map layers all brought in together, as well as some public outreach about what do people know out on the rivers and creeks nearby as well as starting to talk a little bit about what do they want to see? What sort of values do people have on the river? What sort of activities do they want to see? Starting to help us build that overall direction and vision. 
and that's all great, but we also know that not everything is possible or feasible on the river. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, a lot of people are talking about this one stretch of the river. The step that we took after doing that sort of existing conditions and started to talk to people about what do you want to see out there, we brought back experts either from Iowa Department of Natural Resources, some of the staff that had paddled every segment of Mm -hmm. each river or creek, and some county conservation folk that had worked on these rivers and creeks Mm -hmm. for years and years and years. deep expertise. So that we could go back and be like, here is all of the data that we've gathered. Is it true to what's on the ground? Mm -hmm. Have things changed since this data set was created that we may not realize is out of date. Mm -hmm. We can say, you know, we see that this is gathered in 2015. Have there been new eagles' nests created since that time? Mm -hmm. You know, have they moved on to a different nest? Like, it's an incredibly important species and something that, like, nobody wants to lose. Mm -hmm. But then... You know, we don't know just from sort of desktop review. We had people from Iowa DNR who paddle these rivers a lot, who work on these rivers a lot, and they had a lot of knowledge that wasn't in the data set. So we could start to verify and validate this data of doesn't match up with experience. Are there things that we're missing? Just imagine somebody in like an office, just like, you keeping track of the eagles? Well, yeah, Bob's just down the hall and he knows. Bob's just down the hall, he knows where all the eagles are. He doesn't leave his office, but he knows. No, that's why we have DNR. Yeah. (laughs) And that's really important both on our end for writing the plan, making sure our knowledge is up to date, as well as starting to work with the community. Because we don't want to go to them and say, tell us what you want, anything is possible, when anything is not possible. Yeah, yeah. You cannot create rapids on this (laughs) section. Just the topography, the characteristics of the river there, there's no amount of money you could throw at it to make this happen. Wait, is that a thing that happens, like, that's on the table any, like, ever? So they've talked about for some of the downtown dams in Des Moines, changing those to make them safer, but also to create fish passages, but whitewater rapids through downtown, too. Yeah. So there'll be, you know, there could be channels on the side that are smoother water so if you're in a canoe you can do that but if you wanted to go tubing Mm -hmm. you can go down these rapids like that's Hmm. something that we found out was possible i guess i was just Um, hearing that as like purely recreational or like you know my my neighborhood i'd really like a mountain (laughs) like it just sounds so so bizarre but these are things we want to know before Mm -hmm. we start to build up the expectations of the public um so that when we actually get to the recommendations, we don't mm-hmm. come back and our community's are like, this isn't what we talked about. Right, we said, trust. You said we could do this mm-hmm. and this, and it's not possible to actually do those things. So mm-hmm. validating the data, both in terms of making sure the staff and steering committee working on it has the most accurate, up-to-date information and is starting to internalize that data and knowledge, as well as in our public outreach and sort of overall discussion of the project. Have we validated this data to know that the process moving forward is going to be authentic Mm -hmm. and valuable? I think there's a good lesson there, too, in data work as well. Like, for example, if we were trying to maximize profits or just somehow model profits for some generic company, we would want to just know the basics of, like, what's their average profit? 
are we talking thousands of dollars? Are we talking millions of dollars? And that may sound kind of trivial, but it, it makes a huge difference. And and if you were expecting millions and you're only seeing thousands, you know, that might spark a red flag and say maybe something's wrong with this data. It seems silly, but there are some really embarrassing examples out there. I was just talking to somebody about this recently, but I think it was around 2008, 2009, there was this, and this is kind of getting into analysis, but I think it's just sort of that gut check of data, and, and this can be for yourself as an analyst or, or talking to your, your experts and your stakeholders, but I want to say it was a story about, or some published research on like debt to GDP ratios in different countries around the world, and I'm not going to remember exactly which way it went, but there was this common sort of understanding prior to this research that um, debt to GDP ratios had this certain effect on economies, and um, this research was published and was completely counter to that common understanding. And so politicians are quoting this, you know, as as it fits them and their purposes. And everyone's questioning, nobody can reproduce these results. They finally share their data. And first of all, it was in an Excel spreadsheet. I don't know who does econometrics in Excel. Just bonkers to start with. But it turned out they hadn't selected all of the rows. Like they were just missing countries. And it happened to be countries that really changed the results. And instead of saying, wow, these results are really different from what kind of common knowledge would say, they went, oh, we got it. (laughs) We found what nobody else could find. And it's important to kind of check yourself before you wreck your reputation. So the second half of data exploration that I want to talk about is cleaning up your data, really, making changes to your data. And some of this can be really simple. So we're kind of assuming that we've got all the data that we need and all the data that we can feasibly get, but there's some weakness in it. So maybe it's one of those statistical problems where in its current state, it's not going to play nicely with our models. So one example of this, if if you've taken maybe high school statistics, you kind of remember correlation. And if you'll remember correlation, it's a linear measure. And so it measures if you've got a vertical and a horizontal axis and a bunch of dots on it. If you've got something kind of U-shaped as your, your scatter plot there, your correlation is actually zero because it just it doesn't work. You have to have a, a sloped line. And there is some similarity there for some of the modeling techniques that we use. So there's you can make transformations that turn that into a linear relationship before you start modeling it. So there's some of that statistical stuff, but there's also just really practical things. Like if you've got survey data and people are allowed to somewhat freeform answer fields, but they're giving like a narrow, like maybe it's gender. And instead of giving them options, um, you let them type it in. There's a good chance that maybe some people just gave single letter answers like F and M and other people would have spelled it out. Uh, maybe there's spelling errors. And so you can just kind of clean that up and standardize it because you need those values to be identical where they make sense to be identical. Another really important thing is missing values. We don't always have every piece of information for every observation in our data and we have to make a choice on what to do with that. And this is one of the trickiest things. This and and some other times when we might want to like maybe normalize the scale of data, you're kind of giving something up by doing this. So no matter what you do, you're either deciding just not to choose that field at all. 
so the eggs have gone bad and you're just not going to put eggs in your cake. You can substitute. So maybe this is a recipe where flax meal will work fine, but maybe it's not. You know, so maybe there's another field that you have that closely resembles it. Another thing that you can potentially do is what's called imputing values. So you can look at the rest of your data where you do have that value filled in and you can say, well, there's a pattern here. We find that people in this geographic location tend to have this value more often. So where it's missing, if people are in that geographic location, we'll just give them that. We'll just assume that. I never really like that because it's like, well, what's that really telling you then? You're, you're making a lot of assumptions. Or sometimes you can also not really use the value, but you could, maybe it's meaningful, just the fact that it's missing. So like for credit card companies and they're looking at credit applications, sometimes income isn't actually a required field on a credit card application. But if somebody doesn't put their income down and they're applying for a credit card, you can kind of almost assume that it's on the low end. Um, otherwise it would help their credit application. So you can um, basically create a flag of did they have income information in their application, yes or no. Yeah, so you mean my GRE school, huh? <laughs> which I did not submit to my grad school. Really? I didn't know that. I thought you were giggling about that time that when you were in school and you got approved for a credit card when I was employed and got denied for the same credit card. I'm a good bet. I had no credit history. People know I'm a good bet. Yeah. One of the things that I was curious about when you were talking about this, and I guess it's really about that recipe metaphor, mm-hmm. is there a part of data validation or maybe another step in this process where you go back and look and say, is this the right recipe? I think so. In this analogy, recipe to me is almost like the statistical model that you're going to end up using. So we might not be at that point. But if you're getting to the point where you're like, I need raptor eggs in this recipe, and you're like, that just doesn't exist. And also neither do half of the rest of the ingredients on this recipe. Tell me more about what you're thinking about, like, wrong so recipe. So maybe this is part of the overall model validation, but like when I think about validation, especially at this step, before you go and do a lot of the legwork, I would want to take a step back and look at it and be like, I see these ingredients. From my knowledge of cooking principles, Mm -hmm. this doesn't quite add up. There is, you know, an ingredient or type of ingredient missing Mm -hmm. that I can see from this point. So before we go further, we should take a step back, collect more data, find that substitution, Mm -hmm. or, you know, take a look at that overall process now that you've collected your data to see for water trails, can we tell there are segments of our population or our communities that we don't have enough knowledge of or don't have Mm -hmm. the right data Mm -hmm. for or haven't heard from? Mm -hmm. So that even though the data we have is very accurate Mm -hmm. and we understand it and it's ground truth, it may be an incomplete picture. Yeah, and I think that definitely comes into play more when you have less control over how the data are measured. So, you know, maybe if you're pulling census data and you're getting it back at the census block and then you start mapping things and you realize that that's 
way too broad of a measure for what you actually need to do, you know, you might have to rethink your approach altogether. And that would come from initial data analysis. Even myself, you know, I'm, I'm talking about this cycle as a very linear thing, this cycle of problem solving, but, you know, at any point we can kind of go backwards to an earlier step because something along the line has, has tripped us up or invalidated a previous assumption. The nice thing, too, is that the actual running of a statistical model these days is relatively low cost in terms of technical resources and time. Once you get to that point, it's like a line of code and you run it. And depending on how much data you're working on, it could be three seconds, could be three hours, could be a little longer. But, you know, you you can find out very quickly whether or not things are working and you're getting expected results in that arena. So you can kind of go back and, and reconfigure. One of the reasons I bring that up is sort of my second point. And that is definitely in my experience as sort of a public sector planner, um, but I'm sure this is true in a lot of fields and cases, you're not going to get perfect data. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get complete data. Mm-hmm. You may have those situations where for water trails, we know that we haven't heard enough. We don't have good enough data, complete enough mm-hmm. data of the African-American experience of our waterways. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, we're reaching out and talking to these communities and the time that we were doing this process is the time of the Ferguson events where these communities, you know, recreation on the river was such a low priority for them, Mm. which is absolutely understandable. They were worried about their safety and much higher priorities than this you know, 30-year water plan. Mm -hmm. So we were limited in the data that we could get. You know, we all have budgets and time Mm -hmm. constraints, and, you know, we made several additional efforts that we didn't plan for because we knew this was important. But at a certain point, you have to say, this is what we can get. I think a really, really important thing at this step or at this stage for planners or for any other field is to be transparent and acknowledge the limitations of your data Mm -hmm. so that, you know, for a company, when you're documenting or reporting Mm -hmm. out on this, you know, it's all there. For us as planners, it's in the plan itself and it's in the public process itself that we are acknowledging that here are the limitations that we can see in our data. Here are assumptions that we have that we've tested and validated as much as we can, but there are limits. And also kind of preparing for that next steps or recommendations for future study, right? Like acknowledging all those things you couldn't get to. And it's important, I think, for us to acknowledge this, both internally as we move on to recommendations, as well as externally to everyone else, is this is also kind of a data point. Mm -hmm. Like we know that this perspective or these pieces are missing. Mm -hmm. It's not good enough to just say we did our best now we're going to move on and make our recommendations I think we need to state the limits in the data and keep those in mind when we make those recommendations and say here's what I would recommend based on the data but we should have these contingencies because there are dangerous gaps so if you were running the particular newspaper involved you would say Dewey beats Truman says everybody except the east coast (laughs) (laughs) right It's not a sexy 
thing to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why, mm-hmm. you know, a newspaper wouldn't do that. But at least in our roles, and I feel like it should be true for anyone's role, we have a responsibility to be transparent about our mm-hmm. process and about our products. And one way to do that is saying, here are the gaps that we've recognized. Mm-hmm. Here's how we tried to address that, but we couldn't because of this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there's a lot more faith and trust built up with the community, yeah. as well as an opportunity for people to see that and then be like, I can help address that. And they can come to you with, solutions and ways to make either this process or your next process even better. Mm -hmm. This is interesting because I was just talking to my parents about something like this. Uh, Hi, mom. Hi, dad. Talking about sort of the number of published studies, dad had emailed something specifically about like nutritional studies are ending up being kind of a lot of bunk. (laughs) Um, And just talking about how in general there's a problem with that sexiness factor, right? Like researchers have a difficult time getting published in journals for, hey, we had a hypothesis, turns out it was false, didn't actually learn anything. I mean, you do learn something when that happens. You learned that method A didn't work, but people want to know which method does work. And so it's hard to get published if you're doing the former. And so they'll massage and, and ring the data until it shows something. And then other people have difficulty reproducing the results and you get those debt to GDP ratio findings, you know? And, and this is even going way back to our very first episode with Mackenzie talking about the news and how, you know, with budget cuts, there's fewer scientific journalists who understand these things and you end up getting headlines saying, you know, science says this hot drink will kill you. Click to read more. And, it's not true the next week they come out and say just kidding something else and it can create that mistrust Mm -hmm. because of that lack of transparency and and intellectual honesty that can happen yeah and this is something that i could talk about (laughs) all day um because it's a pitfall that we constantly run into and not even necessarily from the staff side of thing but the politicians who have to stand by this as well. Mm -hmm. I can confidently say for urban, suburban, town, rural planning, any sort of planning is incredibly complex. You know, even a small town Mm -hmm. has so many different variables and factors going into it. Mm -hmm. So it's always, 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 with maybe the tiniest exception, because (laughs) there's always an exception, but I would say... You should never really trust a single-sentence tagline that Mm -hmm. is going to solve an urban problem. Mm -hmm. There are no incredibly simple solutions Mm -hmm. because if there were, we wouldn't still have these problems. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't still have congestion or affordable housing or... Right, if it was easy, everybody would have done it. Right. (laughs) Um, And so too often we oversimplify or sort of airbrush this image Mm -hmm. and we're not acknowledging the flaws in the process the flaws in the data because we're afraid that we're going to lose support for the project and i understand the motivations and you know if you want that project to go through sometimes it feels like you have to do that but it undercuts you for the long term Mm -hmm. because there's going to be that degradation of trust And that we need to be more comfortable saying that 
this is not something I like saying, Mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, like, I am an expert in urban planning. This Mm -hmm. is something I've dedicated myself to, and I know a lot about it, and for um, transportation planning specifically, I read constantly. Mm -hmm. After work, on weekends, like, I'm reading blogs, like, this is my passion in my life, and I put a lot of myself into it. I am still going to be wrong sometimes. Yeah. There are still things that I am not going to know, even within my very specific niche. And that is just because cities are incredibly complicated. Planning yeah. is never this variable in, variable out, like, right. easy thing to do. And I think we need to be more comfortable in our skins as individual planners and as cities to say that we're not always right. Because if we ignore that or try to hide that, we're not going to take risks and we're not going to try anything new because we may get it wrong. And then we feel like that's going to blow up in our face and we're never going to get to do anything again. Well, and I'm hoping that our listeners are taking from our conversations valuable tools to help with their critical thinking processes and ask good questions and really kind of test these experts, right? Not only to check for kind of intellectual honesty, which unfortunately we do have to do in some situations, but also to get back to kind of that data validation and exploration. Like, right, right? you know, if I ask this question, maybe, maybe it hasn't been thought of, or maybe they didn't know it was a concern, or maybe I just increased my own understanding. And it's one of those that for any field, if you are an expert who is fully immersed in this topic it's actually a lot harder to see what some of your underlying assumptions are. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh, yeah. And we need that feedback. Hopefully, since I'm an urban planner who does a lot of public engagement, (laughs) it's not in a combative way, but nobody's unassailable. And Mm -hmm. if, even as experts, we can't take the time to authentically listen and constantly reevaluate sort of our principles and make sure, like, is this still validated like is this still Mm -hmm. accurate is this still true within this context and experience you know we can't do our job as well as we should be so folks stay savvy (laughs) ask questions and ask us questions we love your questions and love your feedback so please reach out to us on twitter on facebook you can find us at blbdpod.com. You can email us at brightlightsbigdata at gmail.com. Let your friends know what you like about the show. Let us know what you like uh, by reviewing us and rating us on Apple Podcasts. And good news, we are hopefully moving forward with our uh, recording studio getting back up and running. So we're hoping to return to a guest episode in just a couple weeks here. or um, yeah, Whether it's here or at our lovely local library. Yes. Um, but we were looking to bring guests back in mm-hmm. and get back on track. Yeah. So thanks, as always, for listening. This has been Bright Lights, Big Data. Until next time. Bye.